fantasy animation podcast takes its listeners on a journey through the colliding and sometimes competing worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Each episode, we select an example of fantasy animation and consider the ways in which it functions to inspire and use our imaginations within the sphere of all things that are sculpted, composed, crafted and drawn. To help support the show, please subscribe via your podcast feed and give us a like and a quick review. It takes no more than a minute, but it really helps us to grow our audience. You can also find our archive of podcasts and our weekly blog at fantasy-animation.org. You'll find the latest reviews there, features, editorials, all written by academics, writers, historians and professional animators working within these overlapping media, mediums and genres. Failing all that, tell your friends, tell a friend about the show and the good work we do here. There's no substitution for good old-fashioned word of mouth, so thanks for downloading and I really hope you enjoy the show. listeners and welcome again to another episode of the fantasy animation podcast i remain as always alex Sargent, and i continue to be chris holiday yeah continue to be and as ever was uh chris this week we are doing the secret of Moonacre, yes. um a i think underappreciated fantasy film from the late noughties yes, um yes. uh a movie about time a movie about family a movie about uh conflict and trauma uh the high fantasy the low fantasy somewhere in between Mm -hmm. so i think there's loads for people to be interested in um from my perspective this week how about in terms of animation well i think it's and you gestured to i think it's 2008ness is significant insofar as some of the other fantasy films around the around the period that perhaps leaned on on certain kinds of digital special effects uh i have yeah a couple of notes i think on the director who obviously has a particularly important or significant animation heritage Uh, and i would also say something maybe i'll get a chance to ask this week's impossible question about woods the role of woods and forests in both animation and fantasy films and i know you've written a bit on on the kind of the forest the space of the forest and i think there's something also to be said around the role of the forest in in animation so um yeah a few little things but um, a film i'd not really heard of so excited to kind of delve into at the moment absolutely and we have a very special guest with us this week so to help us crack the secret of the secret of moonacre you are uh, a genius (laughs) yeah how many episodes we done now 90 something (laughs) i'm finally getting it uh we have the film's co-screenwriter and associate producer um as well as senior lecturer and colleague here at the university of portsmouth in creative writing uh lucy shuttleworth lucy thank you so much for coming on the podcast hello hi um this is a movie that um uh, i've heard you speak about kind of in, in faculty and, and, and departmental meetings and talks before. It's a movie that I know is a bit dear to your heart. So I wonder if you could start by telling the listeners, I guess, your story of, of how you came to the film. How did you become involved in the project and, and where did it start for you, at least? Um, OK, well, it really started with the fact that The Little White Horse by Elizabeth Googe was my favourite book as a kid. I was rather obsessed with it. And when I became head of development for a production company, I said, hey, we should make this into a film. And 
my bosses said, okay, yeah, you know, see if you can find out the rights. So my assistant and I wrote various letters, emails, phone calls, nothing happened. And then we got an email out of the blue from two uh, women in Australia who were not producers, hadn't made anything, but were also obsessed with the book and owned the rights. <laughs> and then about three weeks later, they ended up on, at my house, sitting around my kitchen table saying, I said, listen, we, I've got money. I work for a company. Um, I'm head of development, which is head of creative. Let's make this film. Uh, and I also mentioned I wanted to write it. Uh, I'd already written another movie for them. So I was working, writing, and my, again, I was told, yeah, as long as it doesn't impact on your work, you can write it. And a friend of mine, uh, Graham Albra, who'd written quite a few, was working at the time, working, doing quite a lot of children's telly, said, hey, it's quite a big film. Why don't you work on it with me? So he had to live close, which was handy. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of time, the film was really constructed around my kitchen table. That's how The Secret of Moonacre began. It was an obsession for me. I just knew it would make an amazing film, and it was a passion. And I went to South Africa, I went to Los Angeles, as my job as a development exec, but also meeting people, talking to people, saying, hey, what about this? And had a lot of interesting conversations with, hey, make him a guy. Mm. It's not Harry Potter. And it's like, yeah, no, it's based on a Victorian novel. That's not going to work. Mm. Um, I think they actually they did a version of Harry Potter, didn't they, for the big screen, a series of films. So, you know, yeah, yeah. market was cool. Yeah, and you're like, yeah, that's a really cool idea. I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah. But it's a Victorian novel. Mm. And then I sent it to the director, Oliver Parker, who at that point cast director. Oliver Parker was quite a big director at the time. Yeah, yeah. And he loved the script. And then again, a lot of kitchen tables, how script development, Graham and I would be at his kitchen table or in Brighton working on the project. And he loved it. And we had various readings and we had Colin Firth kind of semi-almost attached, interested in it at one point to pay Sir Benjamin. My bosses were like, hmm, Lucy's project, interesting, Colin yeah. Firth, oh, Oliver Parker. <laughs> I'll give you a little bit of money to do a reading with actors. Yeah. And suddenly all sorts of people were like, oh, this is really interesting. And then Oliver had um, St Trinian's, which was a total production clash. Mm. And as is the way, directors always take on a variety of projects they have to because you never know what's going to happen what's going to go into production and he just felt he had to give his time uh, to that and he hoped that when St Trinius was, if it was still there he'd love to step back and we sent it to Gabor who had just made the Bridge to Terabithia which was a massive hit mm. and he absolutely loved it he found it really moving and he, then he was in Brighton again people kept flying out <laughs> So that, for me, the trajectory of getting it made had been a few years of real passion and kind of obsession and doing lots of meetings with Ollie Parker, uh, talking to different sorts of people, getting rejections, getting almosts. And then when Gabor came aboard, it was like a bidding war, suddenly. Yeah. All the distributors wanted it, and Warner Brothers came on board and then was like, OK, you're greenlit. Wow. And it was, wow, OK, this is happening. We had been looking with Ollie for a Maria for quite a long time and we did casting competitions and I went to Oxford with him and we we, we interviewed lots of girls. It's Obviously, it's, a, it's tough. A Maria is central to every scene. Mm. It's a lot for a young, for a child yeah. actress. You know, you, you feel that kind of responsibility. But... Dakota had just uh, done The Golden Compass. Yeah, I was going to say, I couldn't remember which one came first. So yeah. she'd done The Golden Compass. She'd done then... The Golden Compass. Okay. So there was an obvious yeah. 
fit and she she was used to working on on um on set and on a relatively uh big film and Gabor really loved the script he wasn't that interested in the book he didn't have that whole kind of it's an adapted mm. classic book so he didn't really care um so it all looked very I mean it was all shot in Hungary it was all kind of mm. quite East, Eastern European mm. and we yeah because Warner Brothers came on board and then Dakota then the casting Gillette Stevenson I think was wonderful um film production is so much based on co-production on where you can get what's you know soft money production money Hungary was um a fantastic place to shoot with studios and um Money and Gabor's obviously Hungarian, so sure, yeah, yeah. It made sense. So that made sense. Tim Curry was very, very funny. I have to say, um, master of um, of very, very rude asides. <laughs> but yeah, it was. Uh, it was a. It's. It, I mean, I am proud of it. It's. It was a big emotional kind of full on thing that took sure. a lot of time because I really had been obsessively you know had done a lot of the kind of creative producing and working on it and worked on the post as well but there was this sort of disconnect with all of the producers which often happens that sure. made it quite difficult and you're just like let's just talk about the film um, but Gabor is an absolute delight okay. really interesting creative person obsessed with Frank Zappa so (laughs) right okay another question to add to the list I've got to ask then but um, that's a really great sort of like distilled like um, there's lots I'd love to unpack on that perhaps if we can do let's just go back to the the beginning of the process which is that you read this novel that you read as a child did you um, and you fell in love with it yeah um so I'd love to hear, like, if for listeners who perhaps don't know the story or you know have seen the movie, but it's been a bit of a while. What, what could you just give us a sort of what the what it was about the novel that really captured you, and perhaps by that way we can introduce the sort of basic plot of this thing. Okay. And then yeah. also, when did you first start wanting to pitch it as a movie? Because I think that's important in terms of yeah. some yeah. of the time frames, in yeah. terms of who you cast, some of the directors. You know, it's a, this is a, a, yeah. a very, in many ways, this fits very comfortably within the Hollywood's world of fantasy at this moment but I'd love to hear where the process started and when things kind of started to get greenlit oh gosh we'll start with the novel though let's okay. tell us about that first um, okay well the novel was some as a book that I read when I was a child and I kind of fell in love with and it, it's a bit like I guess it has Jane Austen qualities in terms of Austen's great ability to observe character um, and create certain archetypes and as in the best children's book, poking fun at adults and their kind of massive egos and mm. bad behaviour and difficulties and this orphan, always great to have a character who's an orphan who yep. doesn't have parents, to find and reunite this sort of warring family mm. in the middle of the woods. I'm actually, I have to say, so I'm writing something else about the woods at the moment. I'd love to talk to you more about woods. Uh, woods. About woods. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah. all set in the woods. It's a, it's a Norwegian myth. But anyway, it's another story. It was a really, it's a very powerful story. And she also had, there were kind of, I liked the, the, the issues that Elizabeth Gooch in her own sort of Victorian way looked at class Mm -hmm. Robin was um, the boy who in London had been her invisible friend Graham and I had so many headaches over trying to work out how do we create an invisible friend with lots and lots of tea around my kitchen table thinking how do we how do we do this Um, but also yeah he was he was a local boy that in the end she kind of falls in love with there's a there's a there's a 
mirror relationship between uh, Love Day and Sir Benjamin of, um, you know, opposites attract and obviously they're children but you have this idea that maybe they will end up together when they're mm. when they're adult but there are lots of themes around fairness around morality around not letting your ego destroy your life and start wars for no reason mm. <laughs> and uh, destroy everybody in your own selfish quest to be right mm. and there's a lot of kind of observation I guess also around sort of I guess male ego and female ego because Love Day certainly has an ego but there is a lot of kind of bluster I'm your father yeah. I'm your uncle mm. I am king of the woods I you know don't ever argue with me because I'm the boss type she pokes fun at that so I think it's it's a very layered novel but also there's lots of beautiful imagery and uh, magic, yeah. English classic novel with fantasy elements, and also you know, I actually teach writing for children and young adult literature that there's something about hope. Hmm. There is a great sense of hope, and also the kids getting the adults to stop behaving so badly and seeing that actually, you know, you have to learn how to apologise and accept that you've been an idiot, um, and that pride is one of the worst sins of all, um, with huge amounts of drama and, and obviously animals, as we were talking earlier, a big dog. Mm -hmm. Big dog. <laughs> so I was very into the whole idea of unicorns and horses sure. and there are all of those tropes in there that make it um, exciting. And, you know, J.K. Rowling said, what was one of your main influences? And she said, Little White Horse. So that was in itself. Uh -huh. So I then was like, right, we've got to get hold of David Heyman, yeah. <laughs> see if they want to co-produce with us. And um, sadly, they didn't. But uh, that was also something that helped. I guess, you know, I'm a pitcher when I was pitching it, talking to people. So was your decision to pitch or to, to, to pitch this book that had been in your life for a long time motivated at all by this sort of the, the you know fantasy try pitching this film in 1995 versus 2005 and it's a very different job i imagine yeah. because um, the state the stock yeah. fantasy had undergone we'd had harry potter we'd had lord of the rings and we'd had the narnia movies right so i wondered if you were aware of this might be a good time to get this I project think greenlit probably i mean i at that point i wasn't working as head of development for a company so that also helped but it was a kind of an obsession really whether or not there'd be any other, I just thought this will make a really, it's a fantastic story. No, sure. Um, but of course it did help. That yeah, that's still more what I meant really. Yeah, like, yeah, Was yeah. it a better commercial yeah. climate to make yeah. this movie? Yeah, although yeah. the Narnia movies didn't do perhaps as well, box office-wise, no, than, than everybody would have expected. But there, there was that, that definitely helped. But for me, it was just a kind of, I, had, I was in this position where I could write this film and work for a company that would helm it, yeah, okay. which makes a lot of difference. And at that point, they were quite well paced in the as a well thought of production company with influence and money, etc. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. um, as I said, as long as they, as long as it didn't impact on my work, which I made sure it didn't, then it was, you know, it was fine for me to develop it. Um, so it was really my baby. I kind of a bit obsessed. I was a bit obsessed with it has to be safe. <laughs> so this kind of 2000s period then is, I think, 
as, as you're both sort of saying. I did a quick look up of fantasy films in 2007, and obviously 2008 is the first of the Marvel films, and it seems like there's a, a, a cluster of mm. fantasy films, or this kind of fantasy film in 2007-2008, before Hollywood becomes progressively dominated by a different kind of movie. And it's right. all you know. We, we always talk to, to students about the peaks and troughs of genres as they come in and out of fashion, and what that then says about you know the world out there and so 2007 you have golden compass which you obviously have mentioned um a film and then another film that i've been trying to get alex for us to do on the podcast stardust because i really like stardust sure. this has been right. a slow this has been a slow burner Love for stardust. me getting yep. stardust he phrases that like i've 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 pushed against this um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no no i like stardust a lot we've uh, just not done it yet yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um uh bridge of um Terabithia, which you've already mentioned and then sort of a few others yeah. that i think would fit uh, Ratatouille, my favourite mm-hmm. Pixar film. Well, um, uh, there's a lot going on in this period. Yeah. I'll also throw in, we've had like Pan's Labyrinth, which I know is not necessarily something you compare to something like that, but well, it brings I, a lot yeah. of prestige. Yeah, yeah. to and fantasy, yeah. I yeah. think Pan's Labyrinth, Bridge Terabithia, um, Secret of Moonacre are an interesting trajectory to think through in terms of in many ways they're mm. very similar movies but perhaps with slightly different tones and That's, registers yeah. because they're both about kind of the fantastical in history the fantastical mm. in memory the relationship between fantas- fantasy and and conflict and, and as a process of sort of healing and trauma and, I, and I've always thought yeah that's interesting when, yeah. when well, I, maybe it's because I, was, I went to see Secret of Moonacre because I'd seen Bridge to Terabithia and was just and I'd seen Pan's Labyrinth and I'd been so kind of bowled over by this new, what I felt to be a new kind of, kind of, yeah, quote unquote, taking fantasy seriously because yeah. the kind of fantasy that existed before that had either been the big Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings franchise, franchise yeah. prestigious, you know, adaptations or, you know, their Dungeons and Dragons or Willow or, you know, the slightly more kind of um, campy, Aesthetic, so I think it's an interesting moment yeah, yeah. in in the history of the genre, and I think this movie really is an important example of this little moment as well. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Were you any of these influences bubbling around? I think or that's interesting for me because I'm I'm a bit obsessed with magic realism. I love okay. magic realism, and I'm now thinking of I went to see a, a screenwriting. I went to a talk about Pan's Labyrinth and with the writer director. And he was so brilliant, extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And he said that it came from a dream when okay. he was... And that really affected me. I mean, I, I love all of that kind of storytelling. He said that when he was a kid in Mexico, he stayed with his grandmother, and he was always scared of this great big wardrobe. And his grandmother would say, you know, it's nothing to be frightened of. And she'd come in the night, and she'd open the wardrobe, and there was nothing there. And she said, you've got to do that one day on your own without me here. And you will see there is nothing there. And so one night, and he set the scene beautifully, and there was the moonlight, and his brother was asleep. And he woke slowly, 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 and he opened this great big wooden, you can imagine this ancient wardrobe, and he opened it, and there was a horned creature <laughs> who is the drawing of Pan's Labyrinth. Right. And that's how the story came. And he said he showed us all of his notebooks. So all of he drew, he draws everything. Um, and that was that before. I think I went to see meet him and talk to him was before. Maybe I was writing Moonacre, but that, that was really influenced me. I love the idea of, mm. of children and fear and fantasy and whether it's real mm. or not. Uh, he's interesting because he draws everything. But, of course, that character with the horns is actually quite benign in Pan's Labyrinth. Sure. Yeah. I, and I guess what your, what your movie has in common with these examples is that there is this 
in each of the three, so I'm talking about Pan's Labyrinth, Bridge Terabithia, The Secret of Moonacre, there, yeah. is, there is, seems to be in the first there's act... There's a connectivity, this, yeah. And there's, a, this, there's this attempt to kind of... At, the, at first, fantasy and reality are presented as separate things. So in your... Yeah. Um, in your film, you've got the kind of story of the orphan, but then she reads the, the book, right? And you get this much more kind of mythical tale. And then as the film develops, you realise that the two worlds are actually one mm-hmm. world, They're and actually perhaps one two world, different yes. ways of looking at the same world, yes, which yes. is exactly what the sort of other two movies yeah, absolutely. also kind of Yeah, yeah, explore. absolutely, absolutely, yes. And there is this fantasy element, and the fact that Robin has been... We didn't, we didn't do that in the film, we had to simplify it, but the fact that yeah, Robin has been in London but he's also in Moonacre. Um, And also those themes of forests, very, very strong, the idea of, you know, going into the woods and the the bad people that live in the woods um, and what the woods mean, but also it's where the little white horse is, which is a symbol of everything pure and good and... um, Beautiful. So, yeah, it's interesting. But, yeah, I think that's that's probably true. And for Gabor, at that point, when we talked about it, he said he'd been offered... At that point, he was being offered everything. Yeah. He was reading and he was reading everything. He was offered everything because he'd had this smash hit and he just fell in love with the story because of the themes and the magic and uh, how different... Pan's Labyrinth is obviously much darker. So I have three... Uh, I guess off of the back of that... One, I was, I'm going to throw in um, Tarsem Singh's 2006 film, The Fall. Yeah, Singh, another similar which, kind of Which, movie. in terms of storytelling, and it seems like, you know, a lot of, from what the fantasy that films that we've done, a lot are very reflexive about imagination and storytelling and, and the way that the, this film uses, yeah, the split between two potential worlds that would ultimately then kind of come together and, and, and how printed images become moving images and then vice versa at the end of the film. So I kind of like how that plays out formally, the, the bridging of, of, of kind of two worlds. So... Um, that the the director who we could spend I mean I, I we haven't got time to go through the d- director but I'd if you go and look at his biography the the stuff that he's done the programs that he's worked on um, working at Hanna Barbera Scooby Doo uh, Nick Riviera the character from The Simpsons just little little things like the the biography of of um, Super is kind of fascinating really and, and seems. I hadn't, re- I hadn't made the connection with Terabithia in, the, in this film because uh, I don't think I don't think I've seen Terabithia, which is oh, pa- we'll add that to the list. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll do Stardust that. and then we'll do um, <laughs> kind of Terabithia. But I, I suppose I I had a, a a question informed by the climate in which this film is entering into the 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 role of fantasy after nine eleven, let's say, and scholars are writing about the importance of of catharsis in relation to fantasy. Almost going back to your, this would make a good film because. Students often use this word, oh, the thing, the thing is very cinematic. They use the word cinematic, which film studies never really talks about. We don't really know what the cinematic is. It's never <laughs> really defined, but it's a thing where video games are really cinematic. Mm. And it's often used as, as a way to describe... So I just want, when you're reading this book that you think has a kind of purchase in this period, are you... Are you what, what, what is... When we say, oh, it would make a really good film... Or it would make a, this sequence is particularly cinematic. What what's that like? What does that like? Are you are you visualizing this is how it's going to work? Because the idea of the cinematic. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting when I'm teaching screenwriting. That's the word I use. The other words I use is filmic. What oh, does well, that yeah. mean? There used to be a kind of thing of film studies cliches, and it was uh, meditate. The film is a meditation on something. Mm-hmm. No one ever says that. Uh, filmic has got a good one. Yeah, yeah, um, the the, the di- students also said the dynamics of a scene. What do you yeah. mean the dynamics of the so cinematic. Yeah. And I and, and I, I think we kind of know what it means without really knowing what it means. So I'd be my your sort of trajectory take on it. as yeah. as a writer is that I was a script reader. I was hitting, saying this is great, buy this, make this, 
And I became a script editor because actually one of the producers, Usual Suspects, said, I really like the way you write. Can you come and start reading scripts for me and developing mm. ideas with writers? So that's how I ended up working for a production company as head of development because I'd worked for years reading scripts as a freelance editor, working with other writers. And what is it? How do we make it filmic? How do we make it cinematic? How do we make it so it makes us want to weep? And how do we use right. the beauty of landscape, mm, of right. objects, of place to inform the story that makes us see why the character is heartbroken, whatever it is. So it's that, I guess. Mm. Is that it's a good answer? Yeah. So, so how do you do that in terms of turning this book into a script then? Perhaps this is a really ridiculous assumption, but the problem with a, a script is that quite often the, the, the plot, the direction, has to be communicated through character if you're handling it, sure. or it needs to be kind of a footnote for the director to deal with later. My understanding is industry standard tends to be keep the keep the stage directions to a minimal and focus Absolutely. on, focus on character and dialogue. Oh, yeah. So how do you make character and dialogue magical, I guess, is my question. Okay. All right. Well, there's a lot more than that because you're writing your visual storytelling. So a lot of the way I teach is around visual storytelling. Right. So what I would go back to... I'm just going to drop in the name of a master here. Martin Scorsese says that everything, whatever genre you're working in, you're writing a fantasy, you're writing a drama, you're writing a thriller, everything is about character. Everything Mm. is about... And once you have your character, then you create the plot. Fantasy is world-building, but it's all about creating authentic emotional storytelling. So fantasy is building a world like any other world. So you could be building 1940s Paris. You could be setting your story then, or you could be setting it in a world where you're in the Spanish Civil War and there are kind of strange creatures mm-hmm. who live in the woods. It doesn't really make any difference. There is, It's how you set up. Once you create, for me, everything is about character. And I'm writing a myth at the moment with a whole kind of a lot of fancy, but it's independent art house for a, uh, a Norwegian company. Um, but for me, it's all about the characters. So I do all my research in terms of myth and fantasy, and I need to know what I would call the visual grammar of that and what that fantasy is and how that world works. But once you have the characters, everything else come will fit into place, I would say. So I think it doesn't... It, it, it's just about building that world and knowing what the law is. So what? what's the world? How does this world function? How do these people live? What are they allowed to do? You know, it's the same... I managed a whole horror slate, you know, what mm. can these vampires do? Sure. You know, can they... Is it crosses and garlic? Is it this mm. and that? If it's not, set it up really early so we know what... Then we can relax. And you can't really create depth in a story with fantasy or horror, which I think... Or sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, until you know what those, that visual grammar of, of, of the world. And once you can do that, then you can add the complexity because the complexity always comes from characters. And I would say dialogue is the last thing you think about when you're writing a screenplay. It's all about the visual. It's all about showing, not telling us who the people are, showing the world they mm-hmm. live in, showing, you know, everything. I always think you show, 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 and then the dialogue comes second. So talk us through that in terms of this movie then. Like how does how does you've got the book, you've, you've got, got the your book. coffee table. Right, what do we do first then? Okay, so what you do is then you kind of for me, I'd been schooled in writing synopses. I mean okay. I read all this dark materials 
for uh, the then Film Council in four days, I think, nearly had to read every book and then write a synopsis. So in the, my training, that's my training to be a screenwriter. It's like, what is this story? Let's distill it. Sure. What are the main beats? Um, I went to a talk the other day for writers with Aaron Sorkin, which was mm -hmm. really interesting. He's over in London, and he yeah. said, as a journalist, you have to say, these are the time. This is the timeline. As a writer, as a screenwriter, we have to create the organic truth of the story, of the film, which is separate. I thought it was really interesting. I've been chatting to my students about this. Sorry, what was the, the direct question? So, so the question is, you know, so you've got the book. How so do you do that So you've got the book. So you practice, compress it yeah. all. You work it out. You write a synopsis. What, yeah. you, you just go, OK, this is what happened. This is London. This is Miss Heliotrope. This is Robin. This is, you, it's a breakdown of what the story is. And then it's, it's working out how to compress it so before we got ollie parker on board we'd spent a lot of time it was really difficult i mean the imaginary friend thing took a long time to kind of work out how the hell we were going to do that and how that would make sense mm. and then it was so much easier when we thought no she just meets him here you know we're not going to have him in london but again it's that organic truth of the story um and when you're adapting a novel you want to the film has to take on its own trajectory um so you what are the big beats of this story it's about love, it's about hope, it's about family, it's about redemption, the thematically, the woods, pride, etc., etc. So you're breaking all of that down, but you're looking at what are the big beats and what are the beats you're going to introduce. Stephen King will say this, you know, shrinking, 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 writing, cutting, writing, cutting. Mm. So it was still far too, it was huge. You know, Graham and I would fight about, I think it was 130 pages or something, far too long, 140 pages, cutting it back, cutting it back, cutting it back. What is the essence of the story? What do we need to say at this point? What's the, how does it relate to the emotional state of the characters? So you're always just slicing it off, slicing it off. Um, and then when Gabor came on board, every director has their own, yeah. this, is yeah. my, this is me, you know, and Oliver Parker and Gabor are very different. So there are quite a few th elements to do with the curse and the plotting that were different. So there was quite a lot of changing, massaging, working out on the script. And then, and then the money comes in and they're like, cost, yeah. cost, cost, cost. So how do we cut this back? When you make a movie, when you're as a writer, they don't, you're lucky if they shoot every scene. So we kind of came in and, did some rewrites and things to just to kind of make it make it all make sense. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think the outcome is that it, it seems very. I was struck by how very economical it is in mm. terms of its. There's no fat on the film at all, no. really. Um, and it seems like the outcome of some of those editorial processes, the outcome of those processes is the the role of, of Maria, because you talked about the the, um, the casting of. Um, uh, Dakota, Dakota yeah. Blue Richards, and obviously off of the back of the Golden Compass, but she's in pretty much every scene. She's in every scene, yeah. And um, there are a lot of there are a lot of rules as there should be. Uh, they have to have school time. Yeah. And they, they can't. So that also, yeah, that 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 affected. But also, we had a lot of scene. We had a lot of action in the woods with the Cote Noir. Yeah. And um, actually, I was one of my students told me that. Musica and Moonaker is massive on TikTok. Who knew? People love Robin. Lots of girls love Robin. Right. And there are lots of scenes that are played, you know, there are scenes from Moonaker on TikTok. It was quite exciting to hear that. Yeah, okay. um, I've got a very strong kind of adamant whiff from, um, <laughs> yes. from Robin. Um, no, I, I think yeah. I the, the kind of focalising... The ball through... like Clockwork Orange as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, ah, yeah, right, yeah, I can yeah, see yeah, that, yeah, I can yeah, see yeah. that. Yeah. But no, it, it seems that, yeah, the outcome of some of these editorial decisions is a very streamlined film that is told very much through Maria's... Um, from her, yeah. 
uh, not point of view, but the, the I would say kind of fo- more focalized. Yeah. Um, and that is that is through the beginning and ending, book ending by the book. Uh, her role as narrator, her role as sort of creative agent, um, the kind of symbolic of her taking that the the hands of uh, Tim Curry and Yoan Griffith, putting them together, yes. putting the and kind of just wanting to get things done. There's something. It seems like that's a really that was a really positive outcome of this stripping back and cutting and editing and, yeah. and because it then it really allowed her story to really be centralized and that yeah. that gave it a sort of it reminded me actually of of something like Enola Holmes mm. uh, which is, is very similar in terms of what it does with class there's a kind of Robin-esque character yeah, in it yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it's played a lot more reflexively I think in terms of the looks to cameras and the but it struck me as very similar in terms of mm. how it was how it was using a sort of 13, 14, 15 year old girl to to kind of see the world through her eyes. Yeah. Um, and so I really liked that about the film. So I just wondered, was that, that seems really a great thing in terms of what you were doing well, and editing was, and stripping yeah, back? Yeah, well, I think it was pivoted. The book is about Maria's journey, but it's also about this, you know, it starts off in a classic way of this girl who's very lonely, whose dad has, whose mum died when she was a baby, whose dad has not been around, has yep. always, at, you know, mm. gambling or at parties or, you know, she has this 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 um, governess who she loved, who's yeah, Juliet Stevenson's fantastic in it. Um, but yes, it is very much everything is about her and her experience and her falling in love with Rolf the dog, so mm-hmm. lion. That's one of my favourite scenes when when Rolf walks across yeah, the and Mary, turns yeah, into yeah. a lion. Yes, sorry, was there any? No, other no, no. I, I, yeah, I think yeah. that the streamlining is is yeah. it felt very. <laughs> I think I think what I'm getting at is that it felt very character centered, which makes perfect sense given what you were talking about. For a for a, a genre, maybe this is not not necessarily true. And I'm looking at uh, Alex here, but for a genre that that maybe often gets critiqued, like many genres, in terms of style over substance, and and a time when right. we're, we're after 2005, 2006, where we've had ten years of a lot of digital stuff happening in Hollywood, yeah. a bit longer if we go. You know, digital did exist before Toy Story. I appreciate that, but there was a lot. There was a lot happening, and I've talked previously on the podcast about 2005, 2006 being a saturation point. I remember Variety running a series of pieces around Hollywood's now becoming saturated by the digital, and and um, and also at a time when Pixar had made Cars and it didn't do particularly well, and there was a sort of we what's happening now with the digital? Where are we going to go with this? And there was there was certainly an industry perspective that there might have been a I saturation. Have, yeah, I went. To, I have to say, I went when I was in LA originally. To trying to raise money and having meetings about the project, I met with one of the uh, sort of script-created developers of Toy Story who worked with Pixar, and she was amazing. And the notes she gave me on the script (laughs) were the best I've ever had. And she talked a lot about Toy Story and how they developed it and gave some really, really interesting, powerful notes. Also about kids and thinking about the market and how you you convey stories. And it was really, really useful that then I went back and discussed that with the producers and with Graham. And and I think that really, really helped elevate it. Screenwriting is development. It's a it's it's always the reason the scripts are never usually shot on one draft. You know, it's a lot. It takes a long while. And yeah. a book like this was, which was big. It was a big story to try and condense it and make it 
uh, exciting and relevant and and um, not overcomplicated. Well, that's the thing. I think it, was, it felt very it felt very grounded in a, in a way yeah. that I would imagine critiques of. And I think that's why I also like Stardust, um, which we'll definitely be doing in the future. But yeah. there's something yeah very character centered around these films and the role of, of of visual effects and digital visual effects of which there are there are plenty. But it's not. It didn't seem overwhelming. There were it was no. There was they were chosen in particular ways to nuance yeah. the action in kind of true magical realist style to kind yeah, of yeah, nuance yeah, yeah, the real yeah. rather than overwhelm it and, and for a genre and I don't, I, again I don't know whether this is true but it, it feels like fantasy would open itself up or invite its invite critiques of its well it's just all there's too much spectacle and not enough narrative as if yeah. spectacle couldn't mean anything which is wrong but also the, the genre privileges one over the other and this felt yeah. to it, it felt a slightly different way of doing Doing fantasy. Well, there's so but... much snobbish. I mean, there? well, yeah, people are very that. Well, that's there, so you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. Or that's a superhero film, for therefore it's not good, or it's got sure. too many special effects, or how do you tell stories? But some um, great special effects don't need to be huge. In fact, the film that I've, I'm in the process of writing, it's sleight of hand, but hopefully, and it is has got that almost Eastern European influence. Hopefully, that the mm. sense of fantasy can be um, as powerful without masses and masses of, of, of special effects. Yeah. yeah, you know, one of the legacies of of not so much Harry Potter, but the Lord of the Rings movies, right? Is that the Lord of the Rings movies essentially? I mean, they they take what's in the books already, in that there is massive wars and things like that in the books, but actually, you know, they're almost constructing them they you know jackson turns them into kind of basically historical epics with action beats and you know that kind of makes it into a grammar of action cinema and i remember when you mentioned the narnia films now i don't know exact timeline i suspect line which the wardrobe had come out when this was in development i'm not sure about the other two which were a lot less successful but i remember that film was quite commercially successful line which the wardrobe but it critically kind of was muted and one of the things it got criticized for was basically this is line the witch in the wardrobe a la middle earth in that you know what they'd basically done to the film and i can remember is they'd added these sort of yes action, action, action sequence, set yes, pieces that yeah, aren't yeah. in the original you know there is yeah. a kind of allusion to a battle towards the end of the line the witch in the wardrobe but it doesn't yeah. take place in middle earth between yeah. six mountains and all these sort of lions leaping at orc-like figures and all the, you know, basically yeah, yeah, they yeah, created yeah. A, another... Too another. much action, yeah. So I think your film, it's interesting you've alluded to the fact that actually what perhaps was cut as the production went along were some action, more action-orientated Yeah, pieces. nothing like that. Nothing, no, sure, nothing not, comparison. Not, yeah. Was that always organically put in because... The book. It's part of the book. It's a part of the story. You know, the Code of Dwight. I mean, I think it's really important in any story, you know, if you're telling a story, Mm -hmm. any story, there has to be conflict. Where does that conflict come from? There has to be an antagonist, whether it's a person or a a place or a company or there has to be something. That's the drama. So there has to be these are the good guys, these are the bad Mm -hmm. guys. And so their story is often more interesting, funnier. They have the best lines, inevitably. So to take too much of them out, I felt, was a loss to, to sure. what the film could so have been. What, what was in there then? Because all, you know, I haven't read the book, so obviously all I got was Tim Curry, which I always could do with more of Tim Curry in, in largely everything. Yeah. You know? Just, just it was much more... It, it just took a longer period of time, and, I mean, I'd have to reread our yeah, scripts okay. to have a look to see specifically, but it would have made it added more 
it just adds more suspense. So by the time the third act happens, you're really like, oh, this is never, it's never going to work. It's all sure. going to go horribly wrong because this guy's never going to come to the table. He's not going to come to the party because, you know, he has too much to lose. Yeah. Um, and then it just makes it that much more emotionally resonant, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah it's interesting. I mean, I know Lord of the Rings. I, uh, this guy, the one of the, the original producers said it was about this passion this kind of suddenly seeing it often is you know you get the right executive to say yes at the right time my mm. experience then things happen they so, can see it and, and that's what, when when you gave me your answer about the you know dialogue is about character and you know it doesn't matter if you're telling a story that's in horror or it's all about and I that I completely agree with and, and I think as a screenwriter you it's important to think like that. And I think because that's what the screenwriter's job is, is to invest um, a sense of authenticity and presence to characters that are essentially words on a page, right? Yeah. Um, but there is a tension between that. And, you know, if you're going to call something a fantasy movie and if you're going to accept that people know what that is, people don't pay to see fantasy movies because they're just like all movies. They pay them because there's something quintessentially sure. fantastical about it. Yeah, so yeah. there is a certain element of, I, need to, I want to see my unicorns, please, you know, yeah, on, yeah. on screen. So I think... Um, the way the film, the, and I guess how that translates in terms of your production yeah. process, I imagine, is that, that quite early on in the process, particularly the way VFX tends to work, is there's someone's going to be asking you, all right, what's the stuff we need to start developing here? What's, now, what, yes. what's, what's the lions that we need to start making? Okay, well, what yeah. happens is, what you know, when when it looks like this movie's actually going to get made, we're yeah. going to get green lit, then you have, obviously, you have your budget. And was and then, this when Ollie Parker was still on board, or was this... I imagine um, there would be some provision. No, there might have been some provisional. They would have been looking the whole time you're always looking because anyone's going to get involved, they say, what's the budget? Yeah, you know, sure. what's the napkin budget? So it affects how go. you write it, I would have thought, a little bit, does it? As much as I'm sure you don't want it to. Yeah, I mean, we, we there were obviously, you know, there were some special effects that I can't even think of now, which we didn't include. But you're working towards a certain level budget. Mm-hmm. Um... But then there is a special effects budget. But if you have a director who comes on board, you just shot a movie that's very, very successful, and you have Warner Brothers behind you, it makes it a whole lot easier in terms of what the what the budget is and how much they're prepared to spend on it. But for me, everything's about creating an authentic story. Mm. And then after that, if if you say for the, at the moment, I don't have a huge amount for for S. Then I'm not saying right. I'm going to do this. So I'm thinking creatively of what I could do. If they said to me, hey. Lucy, budget, you don't need to worry about it. I'd be maybe sure. doing some slightly different things. But. I guess the question actually I'm more interested on a creative level because like, you know, I remember that I remember Philippa Boys Boynes tells a story of, of Lord of the Rings where they the where basically it's a very gendered story and I'd like to think it didn't actually work out this way, but certainly the way she told it was that it got to a certain point in the screenwriting when they were kind of rewriting as the films were being made Mm. where they just realised that anything that involved two people standing in a room talking to each other, her and Fran would, would, Mm. would deal with. At any moment, an orc hit anyone with a different weapon they just said that Peter will sort that out afterwards so they wouldn't write anything in the script they would just put like they fight and that oh, would turn into 10 no. minutes of choreographed action no, so I, no, I wonder no. you must be in an odd position in a screenwriter in it's the, when, very it, you know, annoying that yeah, yeah, someone want, asked want, me quite a well known actor right. asked me if I had actually co- properly co-written The Secret of Munoka because because I was a woman and could oh, I possibly right. have written action I'm, so, I'm, 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 yeah, you must have done the costumes, right? Yeah, or you must that, have done the costumes. Yeah. yeah, did you just do the? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or the bits where, yeah, yeah, where she talks to the cook. That's probably your thing, isn't it? Me. Right, yeah, but yeah, yeah, where yeah. she's yeah. running around in a wood fighting things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. But how do you? 
what do you what do you give the visual effects team to work with? You know, let's take the the story right at the beginning with the, of the myth and you know the, the magical pearls and all that sort of stuff. What do you want to put in your script so that you're having an influence over how these pearls are going to look on a screen? How these things are going to, you know, you don't okay. write such and such grabs Absol- pearls. You no, write no, no. something. I mean, to the give thing the is, I was mentored. Uh, not writing, but actually after I'd written Mo- Moonacre by uh, Bill Nicholson, who wrote um, Gladiator, probably being yeah, his okay. most famous yeah. film. And he always bang his hand, screenwriter does everything. Okay, they're good. bloody directors. They come in here, yeah. write everything. We write everything, and we do. We write everything. Write it how you see it. Write it how you want it to be shot. But you can't put in shot directions. And so for me, I write everything. Okay. And people often say, oh, you write like a director. I mean, I write... Or they direct like a screenwriter. Or they direct like a screenwriter, yeah. yeah. Um, So it's, you know, everything is about you putting in, you know, for us, for Graham and I, we, we, everything was pretty detailed in terms of how it wasn't like that. And it, but it obviously wasn't Lord of the Rings with, you know, 10,000 million orcs. No. Too many orcs. There's too many too blades many orcs. flashing. Too many Alex, there's yeah. too many orcs. <laughs> certainly, uh, that, by the time your film came along, people were starting to come round to that way of thinking, is yeah. that not every fantasy movie has to have a 20-minute orc, orc fight in it. In it. Exactly, yeah. 20 minutes. Mm. We didn't have the time. Twins are much. I mean, if you have the budget of the Lord of the Rings, Bill Nicholson would say, Gladiator, it's just about emotion. It's about a guy who wants to get back to his family. That's all it's about. And everything mm-hmm. else is that's how he kind of rewrote it as it was being shot. Mm-hmm. And that's always, when I'm working, it's always, always about character. And it doesn't, I mean, I rewrote an action film last, God, COVID makes you forget all time. Was mm. it last year or the year before? Pass. 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 Year before. Year before. An action movie, which was great fun. I hadn't written an action movie since. Um, Mineka, it's fantastic. Mm. It's great fun. And, you know, you, you write it. You have to be able to see it. You've got to be there. You've got to close your eyes. You need to do your research, whatever it is, whatever fight scene you're doing. You need to be in the room. Yeah. You need to see it, yeah. So that's my answer. Good. It's a good answer. Um, <laughs> I'd like to... Yeah, I was going to say, I'd like to kind of talk a bit about location because I think one of the things... That again, maybe this is part of the way in which the film felt grounded was its use of location and, and reading up on the film and from what you've said about where it was filmed and, and especially the sort of decrepit house that yeah. is very bare and but mm. gave it a sense of earthiness and grandness which kind of maps onto its use of effects. This isn't a saturated film where everything feels like it's in or done against a blue or green screen. It felt very on, on location. And I wondered, mm. so I, maybe this is the point to start talking about forests and woods mm. and, and things like this because certainly from an animation perspective, a lot of stuff that's written about forests and, and wooded spaces are, are conversely about technology. Mm. Woods are often the place where where technological expressivity and experimentation takes place, whether it's Disney playing with with the multiplane camera in the 1930s to give the Snow White Woods that sense of depth and dimension. Uh, fast forward to, to Tarzan, where it's using kind of deep canvas technology to create these incredible um, point of view sequences as Tarzan swoops through this, this three-dimensional, luscious, luscious wooded area. So you have this weird, weird paradox between technology and the organic. What's strange about animated wooded space that the natural spaces in animation are often highly technological and this maybe extends to some of the way that blue screening and green screen works but Alex I know that you've written on the prominence we were at the same conference in fact on woods and forests and kind of on why forests I think in your case why are forests such a regular a repeating feature of 
fantasy movies, you know, lots of stuff in, in Harry Potter, in the woods and all this. And I don't know, it just, why are the woods There's even a unicorn forest? in the woods, which J.K. Rowling said is the influence. Well, well, I was thinking about, for, I was thinking the, Patronus. Oh, oh. I was thinking yeah, Patronus yeah. when yeah, I saw yeah, the yeah, white. Yeah, yeah, white. yeah, and Patronus, yeah. Yeah, I, all, is, I also, yeah. when I saw the horses in the, in the sea, I also mm. thought Guinness advert, but that's really a separate... <laughs> That is a separate thing. That's yeah. a separate conversation. That's for our podcast episode on. They'd all see red, the little white horse. Exactly. That, you see, they got, they got Elizabeth Gooch was before the Guinness advert. It's everywhere. She so, was there so earlier. why are woods <laughs> and forests and you know, and it yeah. crops up a lot in fantasy films? Well, it's a classical them. trope, isn't yeah, it? it is. Gawain and the Green Knight, medieval mm. medieval literature. It's the woods. Keep to the path. Stick to the stick path. Stick to the fairy tales. Stick are all every set in fairy woods. tale. You know, Hansel and Gretel. Stick to the path. The Course of True Love, In the Woods. You know, John York's screenwriting book, which is brilliant, uh, I use that quite a lot to teach, Into the Woods. Yep. Into the Woods, what happens if you lose your path? There is great beauty, but there's also great terror. I've just been um, writing, yeah, a lot about the woods, about my, my project at the moment, but it's very exciting, mm-hmm. uh, is woods and what they mean and the beauty of them and, and the idea of the of the sun being kept and that the light that spills in, but the darkness of, of how they can be places of great joy and beauty, but they can also, if you get lost in the woods and you mm. don't get out, I mean, every kind of Scandi noir, yep. girls running through, being chased by monsters, whether mm. they're human or fantasy. Um, it's a very powerful um, backdrop to write yes, in I the think- woods. I think it's, you know, I could off, offer loads of kind of quasi-Freudian, which lots of people like to do, about woods as wombs and woods as, you know, phallic symbols. I'll stick it in the suggested reading. I, yeah, <laughs> in which case, people can read that and be thoroughly bored by all that. I mean, the thing I would say is that I think it's uh, Marina Warner, who, when she talks about fairy tales, says yes. that the etymology of, of fairy is quite confused. No from one quite knows where blonde. it comes from. Yeah, from the Beast of the Blonde. But yeah. she mentions two key words, and I'm probably going to forget the exact ones now. Mm. There's two kind of Anglo-Saxon words, and one of them's Faltum and one of them's uh, Fagan or something like that. And basically, it, the two words that seem to crop up in fairy are fate and something about agreeable or to come to terms with or something like that. So in a way, you can see a fairy tale as an attempt to, to reconcile or come to terms with fate. There are stories where magic is used as a solution to... Yeah, Midsummer Night's Dream, the yeah. other one, obviously. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Deep it's nature. liminal space. I've just given a big... Um, on the MA, we've spent, uh-huh. we've spent the last two hours uh, discussing liminal space and its importance, or the breath in cinema. Which is surely where all drama happens, right? In yeah, the yeah, yeah, liminal space. It's very interesting... Um, very, very powerful. I think. I think. Well, the woods are. You know, and from a simplistic point of view, there is no. There's not like. Oh, we can look out the window and we can see the road, and that's the road. You go into the woods and every, everything's game. What's going to happen? Adds jeopardy. Mm. Um, it's exciting. It's exciting. It's and the woods at night. Any child is going to be scared. There's also, there's also a thing about in your film about nature, and there's a yeah. is there a line? Um, if I've got this wrong, I apologise. It's something like the the Moon Queen says something like the pearls belong to no man, they belong to nature, and there's some I don't know. There's something in the movie about yes. gender and nature gonna, yeah, and genders. femininity and yes. uh, and um, well, we did and the moon. Of, it's about the moon. I mean, the thing I kind of still felt a little bit. Sad, I think it would be more pronounced as when Maria arrives at Moonacre, everything is lit by moonlight. Oh, wow. And there is extraordinary beauty. Yeah. She's come from London, yeah. and there is that the sort of urban versus the, the, the countryside. And yeah, I think, yes, we decided 
to a little insight here. Love it. We decided to link nature as something that audiences would recognise, that children who, you know, the environmental story was mm -hmm. already, was beginning to be felt by children and people, kids at school. And so it felt important. This is what we can do. We can talk about nature. Are the gender themes as prominent in the book? Ooh, so I have to reread it and find Isn't out. That, 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 my favourite line is something like, no, I'm going to get it wrong to the screenwriter, <laughs> but anyway, something like... Oh, let's all of, say lines in the movie let's we all, like. Let's <laughs> all, uh, yeah, ruin the dialogue. As, um, <laughs> it was about, I wish I'd written it down, but the it's quiet, that'll, that's because the women aren't here. And so I... The, I did. I don't really know what to say about the way that the film uses and plays with with gender beyond some of the stuff you were saying earlier around kind of male and female egos. Tim Curry playing a, a very familiar to me Tim Curry style role, and also when Maria removes her dress, yes, yes. the dress, and then uses it as a distraction. Little moments in yeah. the film where where the yeah. where the, the narrative is peppered with these. Well, obviously, we wanted to make it relevant, and we wanted to yeah. create a story for girls that wasn't deeply gendered, and in terms of girls. Having action and, yeah. and not being passive characters. Yep. And, yep. I mean, I really did have some unbelievable conversations when I was in Hollywood about this story, um, and about needs more men. In it, <laughs> why, can't, really? why can't it be about a boy? Yeah, yeah right. why can't it be about? It needs to be about yeah. a boy because girl films about girls don't sell. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. We had a conversation with Ron Clements and John Musker, the, the you know Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and we were talking about the Treasure Planet, and they had the exact opposite note in their story because theirs was about a teenage boy this was when's Treasure Planet 19... no it's 2000 2001 2002 yeah. something like that yeah. but I think it's because it's the Disney stable and it's print, we need princesses we need to sell a princess yeah. and you've given us a teenage grumpy boy and they were at the exact opposite kind of problem but that's the only time I've heard it be that way round mm. and I also imagine that if you were making if you were, this film had come out in 2018 Hopefully, less it would of be that. a very different story. But yeah, that's yeah. an very, interesting, very, very different story. I mean, I um, I did some research for Portsmouth a few years ago, to, looking at gender, and I went to LA mm. and I went to New York and I met with Gina Davis, who oh, yeah. has done a massive sure. around around gender and animation, and she had mm -hmm. her daughter quite late and was just so shocked at female characters in animation. Yeah. Who, didn't do anything. <laughs> Sat there while yeah. the boys play on the swings and, oh, it's a bit dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so all of that was going on, but certainly people people wouldn't have said the things they say they they said to me now. Mm. They wouldn't be, you know, they'd lose their jobs, they'd be yeah. frightened. It's a, a very different world out there, but also because now audiences want to see uh, films with yeah. great roles in for female characters. Mm -hmm. So it's a, and it makes money. So ultimately, that always makes a difference. Well, another film that I'd like to do at some point on the podcast is is Tangled, and mm. again, a similar sort of film gets released or gets announced in two thousand and eight, around this sort of time as Rapunzel Unbraided, um, and then gets rebadged as Tangled to address a particular kind of male demographic. The trailers yeah. and people have written about um, the way that the trailer plays with the role of uh, Flynn Rider, the, the kind of at that point, quote unquote, protagonist. Certainly, the protagonist of the trailer not the protagonist of the film and what and how Disney is trying to negotiate particular kinds of audiences. Um, and it seems like this, again, is an overhang of, of Harry Potter. Tangle comes out at the tail end of the last Harry Potter films as opposed to the, to the yeah. novels. But... Um, the, the 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 gender politics of fantasy and who's who's permitted to be a protagonist and who who's not permitted yeah who's yeah. forbidden from being a protagonist is sort of uh, uh, it's interesting but it seems to be particularly interesting in the case of fantasy where where journey narratives are particularly prominent yeah. and, well, that's, and, and it's a kind of, of classic quest movie you know if you yeah. look at Christopher yeah. Brooker um, seven basic stories what is this plot how yeah. can we 
and we all know that we're working within a certain there aren't how many new stories what is this mm. story and how and for me as a writer it cuts down once I have an idea okay this what is this movie what are the general tropes what is the story sure. that I'm what, where where are we going but how can we make it um, resonant and exciting for audiences and why uh, the producer's going to be happy and why we you know how we're going to get great actors to be in it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. makes sense yeah. I, I have one final question yeah. about um, and this is the chance for me to get my obligatory Wizard of Oz reference in so I know within the say. Hollywood context look at his eyes you? light up I know what he's going to say like doubling yeah you are yeah. it's annoying that you knew what I was going to say yeah. the doubling of casting and how you have characters the way one of the ways in which films communicates this kind of trauma that goes down the ages is to have different characters played by the same people yes. so I wondered at what point that was that just an obvious thing from the what start with Natasha with Natasha and also um, Yoan Yoan um, playing Sir Ben but also playing kind of yeah, yeah, Curry, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Tim Curry to yeah, an extent yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. so there is also yeah, as you say that was that just of, an obvious thing that seemed an obvious thing yeah. and obviously a hell of a lot cheaper than having sure, to get other sure. actors in and yeah this is before <laughs> digital de-aging and all this sort of business I, you know, I, I, the idea of kind of genealogies then I hadn't really thought about that, that fantasy often plays with you know legacy and myth and genealogy and, and of course it, in this case it, it does it through the, by having actors play Past and yeah. present, not not the same character, but parts of a family. It, it sort of plays yeah. with the, well, it, the role it, of the. It's mentation. also about that. Um, the whole point of the gag of the Wizard of Oz and you were there and you were there and you there is it, it asks the audience a question at the end about where the difference between Kansas and Oz actually Hesitation, lies. Well, you know, it's that idea, isn't it, that if you are, if only you keep your eyes open, you can see, which is magic the same, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. With, the, with the whole thing about um, the Wizard of Oz is if only you. If you realised, if you knew, if you had an open heart, sure, then you could see that it's here. Oz is everywhere. Need, Oz is everywhere, mm-hmm. and the same, I guess, with Little White Horse and sure. a lot of fantasies. Yeah, it's um, you just need to look clearly, and certainly the film I'm writing at the moment has some of that. Of it's everywhere if you if you just look in the right places. You, you want to, I mean, it's always a question of trying to make it as simple as possible, and I would say J.K. Rowling does that brilliantly in Harry Potter mm. books. It's actually quite simple. But then you add the complexity on. Just where you, how do you get from A to B? This is what you want, and then you add the complexity of the, what seems like complicated plot points later. Mm. I've got. Um, I quite like. I think in terms of the VFX, they seem to be quite concentrated at the end, which makes sort of perfect sense, yeah. and or at least less visible or less veiled. Um, a few little flourishes here and there at, at the beginning, with kind of the the use of, sh- kind of shooting stars. I noted the detailing. Well, on you the wanted ceiling. the threat that the world is going. You know. That yeah. the world is going to end. That everything you've got to, yeah. you, it's really now or never. It has to be done, and you want that always. You know, in story terms, a ticking clock. Yeah, what's going to happen? So this is where the money comes in. I, I, I like that kind of the visual effects are are narrativized because yes. they are they appear in these sporadic threatening instances yeah. that don't but, but then the, they the build are, yeah, yeah. The, the because they are actually going to destroy the world and it is about the nature and the environment and yeah. everything else yeah no, also, no. I don't know again maybe I'm just obsessed with the Wizard of Oz which I am so that's, that's <laughs> answer my own question but, but there's lots of col- the colour is a really interesting use in the film it feels yes. like Okay, you've nodded and, and said yes like that. Yes, it yeah. almost feels like every shot in this movie, when maybe it doesn't look magical, but there's something about the colour that make, brings it a kind of magical, realist aesthetic. I yeah, think. I mean, I think Gabor came from that animation, almost sure. kind of puppetry, yep. otherworldly background that he maybe was interested in, in, in. Yeah, I mean, he obviously chose the cinematographer very carefully. It's, that was his the palette that he wanted to use. If we shot it with Oliver Park, it would probably would have been very English. It would mm. have been a very different kind of film. 
Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. I think we're probably running out of time here, uh, Chris. Yeah, I'm just. I'm now looking up. The, there's a cluster of films again around that time where I think, and I don't know whether this is this is necessarily true, but my, my sense of it is a particular kind of fantasy film progressively being replaced, as I said earlier, with a certain kind of superhero movie. And, and it seems like that the end of the, the first decade of the 2000s was caught between the end of Lord of the Rings and, and the beginning of Marvel, a, a group of films that would, were, as you said, were kind of playing with, with fantasy and be, being reflexive around fantasy and imagination and, and um, visual storytelling and, mm. and that sort of stuff. Where the world things are is probably the end of this yeah. cycle I've made up yeah, in my head. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember that coming out and it being very, ba- you know, doing very badly um, commercially, not critically, but commercially. And that sort of, and then the success of Marvel kind of put an end to all that. But there was a real mm. nice period there. Yeah, where I, I think fall there's into a place for both. Yeah, yeah, of course think, there is. Because the yeah. film I'm writing at the moment, I would say Fitz has that definitely. I'm very influenced. I'd say by Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, well, he's kind of flying the flag yeah. for this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. yeah, and I actually worked with the writers who wrote his first film. I don't know if you've seen. Oh, The Devil's, Devil's um, Backbone. Backbone. Yeah. So the writers of that, I work with uh, as a script editor for oh, cool. Hire, and they were very interesting. Anyway, that's another story. But that has that was a, I love that film. Um, and you're th- working on another fantasy production it, in some descript- description. I'm now. writing, yeah. So it's how am I pitching it? It's a myth based on a mythological Norse creature. Okay. In a real setting. And I want to ask follow-up yeah, questions, yeah, no, we'll but just, I won't because we'll I know. Uh, well, it's early, yeah. early development. I've written one draft. I'm, yeah. So we're we're in the early stages of development, but I absolutely love it. Okay. I'm very, very excited. Sounds about exciting. It. Yeah. yeah. Norse mythology in yeah. real world. And it's got, it's kind of got. I've been writing a lot of comedy recently. It has, it's darkly comic. Okay. And and just before we go, is there anything that you've made that uh, other than the Secret Moonraker that people might want to check out and see online anywhere or? Uh, yes. Um, well, I have just. I'm in the pro. We're in post production on a dance experimental film, which called Ultra, which is funded by the Arts Council. Which I've been working with dancers, uh, different artists who are looking at the way we all experience colour and how we react to it from an emotional sense and how people with Alzheimer's see colour and how it affects their mood. Interesting. So we have uh, seven dancers who've, who've danced and it's it's a kind of narrative around colour. We ha- And we hope to release the film um, it, with a kind of interactive arts exhibition in November. So we have a trailer. But it's, very, it's an exciting project. But it is all about colour. And so my role has been as executive producer but kind of creative the film person oh, on wow. the, looking at how working uh, big on set when it was shot and looking at colour and also how we create a narrative in a dance film okay. and the film is called Ultra Ultra and it'll be out yeah. from November so if you're yeah. listening after that do check it out yeah. and, and remember if yeah. not so brilliant well we'll look forward to whatever that is when on, it yeah. Uh, yeah when it when it comes out but yeah. um but for now Lucy thanks so much for coming hey, on welcome. the show thank you it was fun uh, it was really fun to talk about Super yeah, yeah, yeah. with you and it's a, it's a great movie people should go and check it out because um yeah it's 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 part a really important part of the the narrative of the last sort of 20 years of 
of, of fantasy filmmaking. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess that's been us for another show. Uh, as always, you can follow us at Fan Anim Research on our various social media platforms on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and Instagram. Uh, you can also use that to email us, fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M, research at gmail.com if you have any questions on what we've just spoken about. Uh, we can do it as a footnote episode, um, answer any of your questions and, and, and deal with any comments or, or queries you might have on this film or any other uh, that we've mentioned in the last few episodes. So do get in touch via that. And you can also find us on the website, fantasy-animation.org. Uh, this episode has been sound engineered by Leon Waldo. Um, and that's been us for an episode. And we'll see you next time. Bye.